This episode was better than I remembered. Oh, don't mistake me, the main plot is still pretty weak. And there's issues with it, which I'll go over uh, towards the end here. But this isn't too bad. <sighs> Manny Koto, I was doing some research on the gentleman and his creative staff, trying to find more uh, behind-the-scenes info, and while I found some info about him, it was mostly after Trek, how he went on to uh, get a lot of attention at Fox and got pulled in to work on 24 for several seasons, as well as to go work on uh, Dexter, which you've probably heard of both shows at this point, honestly. We also found out that he's been doing pretty well for himself. I also found out that nobody's contacted him to come back for new track. You'd think with five... Hang on. Discovery, Picard, uh, Lower Decks, the Giorgio one, and uh, the Pike one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd think with five shows, they would have room to try and bring him back for something. I don't know, maybe he doesn't want to. Just food for thought. Anyways... He's doing his own thing, but they're... whatever. Would you want that? Honest curious. Remember, I still haven't seen New Trek. In fact, I don't plan to... I mean, there's no way. I'm finishing my Enterprise rumina Ruminations this week. I will finish this week. There's no way in hell I will somehow manage to squeeze in time to watch any of the New Trek stuff within the next week. So, for the duration of the entirety of all of my Trek Ruminations, from TOS to TAS to TNG, to DS9 to Voyager, <laughs> to... Enterprise and through the movies, I have not watched the new track stuff. By design. Not because it's bad or anything. Remember, that has nothing to do with anything. I just don't have time, and it's over there separate, and I'm, I'll deal with that when we get to it. Which will be in a couple years from my perspective. But do you think that would be a good move? Bringing in Kodo and his staff to work on any of the new track stuff? Real question. Because... Well, we're going to see what kind of stuff they do with Season 4. And this episode, I think, is probably a good vertical slice. For like, I hate to use such a term. Um, a good vertical slice of what their style is. It isn't that strong, but it carries itself on little moments, little character tidbits. That's uh, Alan Croker does some good stuff with that. And being well-tempoed. Now, normally I talk about pacing when it comes to fiction. Tempo is a little bit different. Pacing is about the intensity of events and how they flow through each other. Tempo is a little bit more literally how rapid-paced uh, events happen and how quickly they bleed into each other, etc. There's very little downtime this episode. It's mostly just boom, and then boom, and then boom. In fact, they do something I've talked about before. They bounce the camera around. We bounce between multiple perspectives, uh, three at least that I can think of, rapidly. And it's usually each perspective gets a couple minutes. We move on to the next one, and we move on to the next one, and we just bounce between these perspectives throughout the course of the video, or throughout the course of the episode. It helps to keep things feeling more engaging, even if they aren't really all that engaging. But I will notice that unlike many other episodes, including several of the Season 3 ones, and a lot of the nitpicks I had last time around... I only had a few nitpicks here, and almost all of them are on the historical side of things. Let's get this out of the way. They screw up the historical side of things many different ways. Let's let's just do that. Let's just say that. They didn't do full research on World War II at this era, even for the alternate timeline. There's mistakes. Okay. That's the big one. That's the big nitpick. And it does show up many times. But the rest of it is pretty solid. But again, I want to talk about that later. So let's move forward to J. Paul Bomer. Bomber? Bomber. Now, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I've actually brought him up before. He was back in The Killing Game, all the way back in Voyager. Remember that? He played the Nazi. Now, 
<laughs> I made fun of the fact that we didn't even learn his name back then, because we didn't. But here he plays the Nazi, whose name is... Huh. I'm just making fun. He's actually a decent guest star. He's done a few other bits. He played one over in one, the, the futuristic uh, Borg drone. He also played um, Mestrel in Carbon Creek, one of the Vulcans. He's a, he does good stuff. It's good stuff. Anywho, so... Why, uh, I, I find myself in a weird situation where I'm not sure how much P-51s could actually damage a shuttle pod. See, here's the thing. If those were fighting against, oh, the Enterprise, which not only is a spaceship, but also has reinforced armor at this point, never mind the whole plating polarization thing, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't even dent it or scratch it. Maybe scratch it. But against a shuttle pod... That thing's barely a shuttle, and it's not really designed for any of this, and it hasn't had any overhaul, so maybe they could actually cause it damage. I don't know. What do you think? It's, it's just interesting to think about, because it's another one of those advantages of having the lower-tech track. Don't mistake me. I like high-tech track. I do. And I think it's going to be an interesting challenge when we get there to rewrite some of the more TNG and DS9-era stuff. But one of the advantages of Enterprise's era is the tech is so low tier that you can challenge the characters a lot more because, well, they are so much lower tier themselves, right? I mean, it speaks for itself. So it's cool stuff. I'm with it. Anyway, so they managed to get the radio, even though they were really dumb last episode, and they figure out very quickly what's going on. They even get an episode of The Shadow. Now, I don't know if The Shadow knows, but we do know that Tucker explodes at T'Pol for what is effectively no reason. I was ready to read the riot act to him. By the way, this is what I mean by the tempo. Check this out. So Tucker explodes, then it cuts to us being here is no accident, and then it cuts to Silic sneaking through, then it cuts to uh, Jack Walton, uh, Gwaltney? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's the gentleman who voices, or excuse me, uh, acts as Vosk. He's actually really good at it. In contrast to, say, Dolem, and, and I almost feel like this is done on purpose, Dolem was our last big villainous character, and then there was the woman, and the woman was, you know, very founder, and Dolem was, oh, I am a military guy. Vosk is very soft-spoken, and very intense in the way that he presents himself. He assures you very calmly that he is going to get the information he needs, and he manages at every stance to outwit and outthink those around him. It shows him as a different type, but arguably far more intimidating villain, and I think it works quite well, personally. I don't know why the, the pseudo-pronunciation thing... But the point is, he does a good job with it. We see, we see Vosk, and then we cut back to Tucker. Boom, 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 boom. You see what I mean about the camera bouncing around so much? Tucker apologizes. Comes right in and says... I'm sorry. I I, meant, I thought we were going to be returning home. Not stuck in another one of these situations. And I suddenly hear the voice of the creative staff speaking through the character. Imagine if they just started season four with the episode Home. Now, I like these two episodes, as I've already indicated. But I have, and I kind of referenced this last time, I have unironically recommended to people who have never watched Enterprise before to skip Stormfront 1 and 2 and just chop off. Like, okay, season 3 is done. Now watch Home. And just skip the middle ground. Just just jump over that. And if you're really into it, go ahead and rewatch it later. I have received multiple people's accounts that that was good advice. 
it is a shame because I do think there's some quality in these two episodes, or at least in this episode. I haven't seen the next one yet, obviously. I haven't ruminated on the next one yet. Either way, Tucker comes in and he's all apologetic and his attitude makes perfect sense. This was supposed to be a victory lap. Instead, it's not. Instead, it's a threat for everything. Huh, that, that sounds really frustrating. Imagine having just finished a season-long arc and then suddenly having to fight for the safety and security of the entirety of time. <sighs> I'm building to a point. Nevertheless, he reaches out to T'Pol. You know, the two of them discuss their, re not retirement plans, but you know, what they're going to do next. I like Tucker's thing. I'm going to head a different beach <laughs> every week. I got that beach, and that beach, and that beach. Uh, that's going to come up, by the way. Do me a favor and remember that. This then leads to Phlox, which leads to Porthos, which leads to Daniels, who is pulling a Chakotay. Now, what's funny is, I, I sometimes wonder if this is what they wanted to do with Chakotay back in whatever that episode was. Uh, not Twisted, it was much later. Uh, shattered. Because, yeah, that's kind of what they got going on here. And then we have a cut to Voss, because we have to establish our villain, because we've never heard of this guy before. That's another problem. Here's this dude you've never heard of. Okay. Anyway, so Vosk talks circles around the German general. What's funny, though, is the way he does it. This isn't particularly good dialogue. It's nothing to really praise. It's entirely on the presentation. Because the German the German general, if you're wondering why I don't name him, it's because his, cast, his character name is listed as German general. So with all these Nazis having no names, what are these, stormtroopers? So German general... Is like, oh, the, the, the resistance is, is fighting back and our lines are getting spread thin and we fear a counterattack, yada, 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 right? All actually pretty practical concerns and relatively down to earth, things that he is actually right about. Vosk then tells him, well, your, your concerns are minuscule and inconsequential. Why not just introduce a pathogen that kills everyone that isn't of your race on the planet? Why not simply, which, by the way, would be a horrifically stupid idea, but, I mean, the Nazis probably wouldn't know that. <laughs> Think about medical tech in 1944. And then he's like, yes, so uh, we are still allies. There's no need to dissolve our, our alliance. It is so mutually beneficial. Implying implicit, hey... If you don't get me these parts, we're no longer allies, and we'll turn these guns on you. The general, properly cowed, says, no, we're not terminating our lines. Oh, well, then I'll expect these by the end of the week. And he's so quiet. Again, I think this is yet another villain that is salvaged entirely by the actor. We have a decent list of those. Even just in Trek, we have a decent list of those. I mean, if it wasn't from Ricardo Monteblon and Marco Lemo, right? <laughs> just to name two examples. We could add John Delancey to that list if you count him as a villain. Anywho, so we run through a few things here. Next thing we mention is the Mafia. Now, they don't actually call them the Mafia, but what I like about this is the Mafia is portrayed as anti-Nazi. Bonus points. <laughs> Look up the Italian campaign sometime. Uh, so this then leads to Archer. And, you know, I've made a lot of fun of Archer, and I don't feel bad about any of it. One thing I will give Archer, he is weirdly good at fitting in with older terrain. You know how, like, Kirk was always the fish out of water, and, you know, most of the other crew, whenever they go into the past, they're just like, I don't understand anything that's going on here. And that was usually the point. Like, they were either, either poking fun at the past or poking fun at the future. Archer just slides right in there. And I already made the uh, Quantum Leap joke, but it's funny how that's kind of one of his things. This, this came up in North Star, if you remember, too. 
It's just interesting because he does effortlessly slide in and lets them provide the information so that he can use that to modify how he should respond. Pretty good improv. Anyways, this then leads to Daniel's, where's Archer? I want you to remember that for a second. To my knowledge, they never definitively answer who rescues Archer from the, the, the shit, the, the weapon. And I looked it up and, uh, there was an interview. Uh, God, I'm trying to remember when this was, 2004 or 2007. It was one of the two that basically said, yeah, no, we, we didn't have any plans there. Which doesn't codify the idea that the writers didn't know what they were doing with it. But it feels very much like they just needed Archer to live because he's the main character, so he did. Now, we could argue that Daniels in his super mega teleport anywhere in the galaxy and throughout all of time thing was able to grab Archer while it grabbed Enterprise. That doesn't really explain why he wouldn't know that Archer was over on the weapon. Or that, you know, he would be unaware of his absence or whatever. Let's just move on for right now. Anyways, so Archer's alive. Cool. This is when we find out that the temporal Cold War has gone hot. Okay, that, uh... Well, that sucks, if you think about it. But the problem is, that should be such a nightmare scenario that it would be kind of impossible to visualize. Doctor Who tried. Some of you probably remember this. There's even a speech that was given, uh, this was during the 10th Doctor's reign, specifically, where they, where one of the women, one of the Time Lords, actually mentions to Rassilon, you know, timelines being country, creatures being birthed and then erased over and over, only to die again. You know, she tries to give some kind of speech to get an idea of what the time war was really like. But the problem is, it's it, it's not really something you can present in a show. It's just not. An idea where people are wielding time against each other is such a high-level concept that presenting it in a visual medium is probably not going to work unless you really know your stuff. And they don't. So instead, what we have is one tiny slice, a vertical slice, you might say, of it. But actually, what we see here... And the episode name gives it away. This is the this is the very beginning of that. No, no pun intended. This is the one point at which the storm front, the temporal hot war, has, could have begun. And thus, this is right before it has begun, even though this is a temporal... You see the problem already. These people have broken the accords with each other. Therefore, there's no reason for them to stop trying. Therefore, there's no reason for there to be a beginning to the war, because it doesn't actually work that way anymore. Oh, no, they're back there. Okay, well, let's send someone else. Oh, they've sent someone else. Well, let's send someone else. Oh, no, they've sent someone else. They even mentioned temporal agents who are bouncing all over the place dealing with things. Why is this on the Enterprise crew? Now, I am making a great deal of fun of the plot, and that's because it's stupid. But I am building to a point, believe it or not. So, this then leads to Archer having a meal with stuffed peppers, uh, what looks like colored greens, and carrots. That's a frickin' feast. I'm actually impressed. What's funny is the dialogue then indicates how bad the food is. And she's like, yeah, no, the Germans get all the good stuff. And it's like, but you... I mean, there's no meat in that, but, you know, meat's kind of a rare commodity. I don't know if I'd say rare, but, you know, especially in wartime, meat is a heck of a rare commodity, so, yeah, sure. I mean, they have to smuggle ground beef, which they don't even end up with, because that sucks. Anyways... This then leads to Silic, who tries to take Tucker with him, fails at it, and then saves Tucker's life. Now, what's funny is I noted that first. I was like, interesting how Tucker is still alive there. And then on the off chance you missed that, Tucker himself flat out states, it's weird that he saved my life. 
he dragged me out of the bay before opening the page. He could have just let me die there. That is actually an interesting bit of foreshadowing, and honestly, I think that's probably the first real sign of the new leadership storytelling style. This is something that's going to come up more once we get to, uh, I believe, episode four, which is when we start this new format. They're going to do arcs, and in the arcs, obviously, they, they establish, you know, they establish, change the status quo, and then pay off, right? Pretty typical. Almost every single one of these arcs is three episodes long, too, so it's a pretty standard format. Then there's usually like an inter intermediary episode, you know, like a filler episode or just an episode of the week. Then you have another arc. But almost every single one of these arcs has hints of the next arc and the next arc and so forth and so on. I should also mention something. In all my research, I found out that they wrote most of these episodes way in advance, well before anybody knew about, you know, the cancellation, which is important because it means none of the episode's scripts, the core writing ideas, were changed by the news of the cancellation, only the execution when it came to filming. I'll mention the episode-ish, because we have vague timelines on this, when the crew and cast found out about the cancellation. It won't be for a bit. Anyways. So, Silic saves him. Cool. And now we need to establish how evil the Nazis are with Alicia. You know, I, I actually, all reality for a second, the fact that there's two Nazi soldiers on the street harassing a black woman. This is a lot more mild than anything I would expect. Uh, anyways, this then leads to the informant who makes stuff up. That's hysterical, really. And he gets 20% off instead of resorting to violence. That's a nice little tidbit. And then we have the Nakul. This is an interesting scene. Uh, this gentleman is played by... Uh, I didn't write down the name. Of course I didn't write down the name. Whatever. We can see that Tuvix, who has been saved by the Temporal Hot War, has thrown his lot in with the Nakul. He gets straight with Archer very quickly. Ah, you're a Temporal Agent, right? I'm also from the future. And he just he just talks straight with him. And all the other people there are like, what is he talking about? Oh my gosh. He's like, no, no, no shut up. You don't matter. <laughs> Until Sal actually shoots him in the hand. What I love most is they're just kind of discussing this almost congenially. Sal shoots his hand. Archer gets livid. Sal almost calls for Archer to be shot here. Decides to let it go. But the reason I find that interesting is Archer's reaction. You might think, why is Archer reacting so weirdly? I mean, he's shooting a freaking Nazi, right? Later on in this very episode, Travis and uh, Tucker have absolutely no problem waiting until all the Nazis are on board the shuttle before blowing it, killing several people in the process. So what's the issue here? Well, the issue is obvious if you think about it. Archer has just been dragging himself through hell for, for a full season. And he's kind of saying he was expecting to come home. He was expecting to be done with this. Can we stop Hurting people to get information. Can we stop this? Please? Like, he's so against it because of the fact that he's so sick of it in himself and everything else that he's been dealing with for the last season. Once again, we're starting to really show actual character development for many of the characters, but the biggest and most important one is Archer himself, who, even though he had a small arc, if you're paying attention, in Season 3, now he's actually going to start developing into an actual character. Finally. So, first steps, again, laying those, laying those bricks early. New team style. I don't want to call it the Kodo team style, but I don't know what else to call it. 
Because it's, it's, uh, like I said, Manny Cota was brought in, um, Mike Sussman, who has been working with the show for some time, was brought in as a, as an actual producer. And the Garfields, uh, Garfield Stevens's, uh, Judith and I can't remember his name. The, the duo, they've done a bunch of stuff. They've actually written one of my favorite Star Trek books, in fact. They, they were brought in. And all of them kind of became the main creative thrust for the, the, the majority of the rest of the show. And really, it's just such a vast difference. Go, I'm sorry to keep talking about this, but going straight from season three to season four, especially with analysis mode on, especially the previous episode, which was headed by Berman and Braga, into this, which is headed by the new team, it's just such a massive contrast between the two. Like, you could see similarities in some ways... I'm getting off topic. I don't have much else to say about the episode, really, because, again, this is all trying to build up and establish the new villain. We have to establish why he's a threat. This is when we establish, you know, the, the actual scope here. You know, Archer calls up. They manage to rescue him. To Paul's face at hearing Archer, Hoshi rushes up and hugs him. That was a good, that was a good moment. I like that. And, uh, yeah, I would have had to Paul probably be like, you know, just like start. To, to walk forward to embrace him and then cut a catch, catch us off. Like, nope, nope. I'm getting that control back, you know. Anyways. But th- this then leads to a, a final talk with Daniels. And we find out the stakes are all of time. He's going to start a super... He's going to start the Temporal Hot War. The Temporal War. Let's just call it the Temporal War. And he's going to cause all this horribleness. And it's this violence and death of everything. And everything's being destroyed. They did this to me and they killed my people. The stakes have been risen. To be continued. I have a saying. I I didn't come up with this saying. It's something I borrowed. But no matter why it sucks, it still sucks. Explaining the why does help mitigate, of course. But at the end of the day, it's still like, huh? And this is dumb. Now, I enjoy this episode for what it is. But the problem is the plot is badly positioned and badly timed. That's, that's saying the same thing. It's badly positioned and it's, it's, it's just not interesting. Having a two-parter about saving all of time after having a, a season-long thing about saving the future. It's, it's, it reeks of the, the comic book thing. We have to raise the stakes with the next villain. We have to have a bigger goal to reach for. And it's funny because last time you had, you know, 24 episodes to establish that and this time you have two. And you see the problems here? I wa- I talked earlier, back during season three, I forget which episode it was, I talked about the anime movie filler. You remember that? Where, hey, here's this villain you've never heard of before who's going to threaten all of reality or all the country or whatever the stakes are of the, the show in question. And then they're defeated and never referenced again after the end of the credits. That's kind of what this feels like. Hey, here's this villain you've never heard of before. And they, there's no buildup. Because there was no buildup. Because none of this was planned. Remember, they didn't even know what the Nikul were. They don't even mention the word Nikul in this whole episode. I was paying attention. It's not said once. I know they're called the Nikul. It is actually in the script. This isn't just from Star Trek Online, unlike the Tutarians, who never got a name in Enterprise. We're done with them, too, by the way. But no, instead what we have here is just... You see how this doesn't work? Even though we've got good acting, even though we've got good character moments, even though we've got good tempo, even though I still enjoy the episode, this is terrible positioning. Doing this right after Season 3 was a terrible idea. But what else are they going to do? This is the question that I posit to you. What would you do? 
your previous boss has sabotaged you, knowingly, willingly, or otherwise. They have given you this terrible hand. And you are now forced to sit at the table with... <laughs> with just... The, with a three high. That's not even possible. Um, I guess a, a six high would be the, the worst possible hand, I believe. Uh, mathematically, I forget off the top of my head. You know, you have this absolutely garbage hand, right? It's like, okay. And what do you do? You have to follow through on it. You have to address the fact that they're in the past during World War II, and there's some alien who nobody knows anything about who's in a Nazi uniform. What do you do? Tying it into the Temporal Cold War as a way to shut down the Temporal Cold War. Spoilers, the Temporal stuff will end next episode, and it will not come back. Is probably one of the better moves you can make here. But again, even though we know why it sucks, it doesn't prevent it from sucking. I like to ask these questions of what you would do, and I like to give my own answer as well. The problem is, I would probably do what the Kodo team did. I would look at this and be like, well, let's chop this off. And in order to chop this off, we have to actually have there be some kind of stakes, and it has to tie into the Temporal Cold War, and we have to make it so the Temporal Cold War ceases. There has to be some kind of definitive end to it. Well, what if there's this one faction that was always an extremist amongst the Temporal factions that was pushing harder than the others, and with their removal, the others are willing to set, settle down a little bit more? I'd name a real-life example of this, but I don't want to ruffle any feathers. But historically speaking, there's been plenty of times where a specific province or city-state or nation or country or kingdom is actually a better word, kingdom, has been just so antagonistic that it's effectively caused war around them for some time until they're kind of removed from the picture and the other forces are like, oh, well, we're kind of cool with each other, so... Yeah. We're cool? And the other guys are like, yeah, we're cool. I don't know where my sunglasses are. I think I left him at my sister's house. That's that's all I got, you know? That's, that's kind of the direction I would have gone with here. And while I might change some of the specific details, making this a battle for all of time is a little ridiculous, I could kind of see the, the usage here. I would also have to explain away a lot of stupidity in the previous episode, and, well, there's only two choices when it comes to explaining stupidity away. And we're going to see this come up later. The two choices are acknowledge it, embrace it, and try to ride around it, that's going to come up in the Augment storyline. It's actually the next major story arc. Or, ignore it completely. No judgment. There's, there's not really a correct choice there between those two. As always, what would you do? I am quite curious. I hope you've enjoyed our thoughts. And, of course, we're going to continue with Stormfront Part 2. The end of all time, Lord. Death, Dalek, Doom, Death. Uh, I'll, I'll see you next time.